Good morning. It's good to see you guys all today. Good looking group. John 21 is where we'll be. And I just couldn't help but think this morning looking out at everyone who's here and thinking of all the wonderful ways in which so many people serve. Even a special day like today where we're having baptisms and a potluck and just so thankful to everyone who's helped get the USS Christian Bible Church baptismal clean and um, helping out with the potluck and everyone certainly who's brought dishes. Uh, very much appreciated. And yeah, I hope everyone can stick around for lunch. Um, this morning, we come to the end of our time in the Gospel of John. We started this book way back in August of 2019, and it's bittersweet to finish this book. We've taken some breaks here and there, but this is our 81st Sunday in John. And the three things that I've hoped for as we study this book are that, most importantly, we would clearly see the Gospel of Jesus Christ on every page of this book and have faith in Him as Lord and Savior. Second, that our faith would be encouraged and nurtured as we've studied God's Word. And third, I pray that however many times we read John, just in our personal time, or if we study it again, for the rest of our lives, that we never read this book quite the same way again. Text this morning, John chapter 21, verses 15 through the end of the passage, into the book, in verse 25. I invite you to read along with me. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the disciples that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your most holy word. And we thank you for this opportunity we've had to study this sacred gospel. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle John, for the ministry that he had in the world, Lord, and that he was chosen by you, Lord, and that he was a witness to the truth of the gospel. He was a witness to the life and death and resurrection of Christ the Lord. 
And Lord, we thank you that we have his testimony that points us to truth, points us to the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we also pray for these baptisms we have after the service. And Lord, for all of these kids who are getting baptized today, we just pray for them to have fruitful ministries and lives of serving you and growing in the knowledge and love of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you followed the news this week, you may have heard that Queen Elizabeth II had her Platinum Jubilee celebration in England. Seventy years she's been on the throne. But the aging Elizabeth, now 96 years old, had to miss part of the festivities due to illness. She won't be around forever. And I couldn't help but wonder about the future of the royal family. In the last century, numerous monarchies in Europe went by the wayside. The Ottoman Empire, the Romanovs in Russia, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Kingdom of Prussia, the Empire of Germany, royal lines in Italy, Greece, and Romania. There are ordinary citizens walking around today who would have been royals had the monarchies not fallen. Yes, the British family is largely ceremonial. The British monarchy has actually been divesting itself of power for centuries. But while other monarchies have been abolished, the British royals have remained as figureheads. But for how much longer? A little over a century ago, the British Empire controlled a quarter of the land in the world and ruled over roughly a quarter of the world's population. It was the empire on which the sun never set. Not so today. And as the queen is well into her twilight years, there are questions of if the royal family will continue to have such a culturally prominent role in coming generations. As the Gospel of John comes to its conclusion, the ultimate future of the church was in no such doubt. Christ's kingdom would not shrink, but would grow. Instead of an empire on which the sun would never set, it would be a kingdom which would reach people of every tribe and tongue and nation. To take the analogy just one step further, consider who is left in the wake. With Queen Elizabeth, you have Prince Charles. With Jesus, you had the disciples. We've talked about them many times. They weren't picked because they were the smartest or the most moral or the most talented. They're somewhat of a ragtag group. You had a tax collector who would have been hated in his own culture. You had fishermen who... I'm not so convinced we're even very good fishermen. When you read the Gospels, the only time they ever have any success is because Jesus provides it for them. And these are the people who Jesus selected to continue his work in his church. Even before he was crucified, Jesus had explained why his disciples would would succeed. It wasn't because of them. It wasn't because of their talent and brilliance. It was because of their Lord and Savior and the power of the gospel message that they were proclaiming. In John chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, on the eve of going to the cross, Jesus talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you Bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In that same passage, Jesus promised the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. 
In John 17, during his high priestly prayer, shortly before he was arrested, Jesus prayed, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I've made this point before in our study of John. But the fact that the early church flourished makes no sense. It makes no sense that poor, poorly educated fishermen of no esteem or political background would have a message that was radically countercultural, and they risked imprisonment, being killed, social ostracism. They did that without going to war or without conquering any territories. And yet it flourished. That makes no sense. It, what would have made sense was that they all die in obscurity. The early Christian movement totally turned the Roman world upside down over the course of its first three centuries and would transform Europe over the next thousand years. It makes no sense that that could happen except for the grace of God. With that, we come to our final section in the Gospel of John. How would you expect this book to end? With one last prayer? With one last glorious sign? With one final really impactful teaching from Jesus? It doesn't really end in any of those ways. It doesn't need to. All of that has already been accomplished. As the, as the resurrected Christ's time in the world was coming to its end, we see the passage simply looking forward as Peter is restored as an apostle by looking to the lives of Peter and John and the testimony of John who gave his account of the life of Jesus. We come to our passage and we look at it in three scenes this morning. First, Jesus restores Peter, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, to, he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus is with Peter. We're not sure if the other disciples are within earshot of this conversation. They can't be too far away because this follows the preceding section where Jesus had breakfast with the disciples. And John will enter the story a few verses later. In the text, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him more than these. Now, what is Jesus asking? Is he asking if Peter loves Jesus more than he loves the rest of the disciples? Is he asking if Peter loves Jesus more than the other disciples love Jesus? The verse doesn't stand or fall based on whichever interpretation someone might choose, because the ultimate point is the extreme of the love which Peter has for Jesus and Jesus is asking him about the sincerity of that love. When Peter responds in the affirmative, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responds to Peter by saying, Feed my lambs. And the conversation continues. Verses 16 and 17. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asks Peter about his love three times. It's fitting. When Jesus was arrested in John 18, Peter had denied him three times. Here, Peter affirms his love for Jesus three times. A couple things to note. First, on the subject of repentance, we see Jesus questioning Peter, which is getting at the genuineness of his love for Jesus. When Peter had denied Christ, denied knowing him, that was very serious. Repentance is when we regret our sins and turn from our sins to Jesus. Real repentance involves knowing that there needs to be real change. Genuine repentance takes sin seriously. Genuine repentance is not simply publicly saying, I'm sorry, while in our heart and mind we're thinking, I'm just going to keep doing the same thing I've been doing. I'll just say that I'm sorry. Real repentance results in a life that has been changed. Far too often in our society, we take sin too lightly. Even in churches, we're permissive of sin and often preach a message of cheap grace. We treat sin like it's okay because Jesus is gracious. But Jesus also desires our repentance. Yes, we should rejoice that there is grace. Absolutely. But grace should never cause us to take sin lightly. Jesus going to the cross for our sins and dying for our sins shows us the cost and the seriousness of our sins. And so Peter is restored to his apostolic office. But what does that mean? Some look at this passage as Peter being singled out to have unique apostolic authority. That would be the Catholic view. But that's not what's happening in this passage. Peter had sinned by denying Christ. In this passage, Jesus is restoring Peter to his apostolic role that he had defiled through his own denial of Jesus. He is not putting Peter in a position where he alone is any sort of replacement or emissary of Christ in a way that no one else is. Peter has a fall and Jesus restores him. That leads to an important question for the church today. When a pastor is disqualified from ministry due to sin, can he be restored? Because of this passage, I would argue that the answer is clearly yes, it's possible. But churches would do well to be careful. It feels like every week I read about a pastor stepping down because of some affair or addiction or some other scandal. Every year we hear about multiple megachurches and prominent ministries where there are scandals. This passage shows that restoration is possible, but it is also a reminder that churches must take repentance seriously. So often, when it's a well-known pastor who's been shamed because of some sin, it seems like so many of these guys step out of the spotlight for six months, a year, a couple of years, and then they're back. And they say, I'm all better now. And I have accountability. Accountability, if you're not serious about it, is worthless. Now, some see no problem with this. 
To question if a pastor should be restored after being disqualified due to sin. Some argue that no one is perfect. Are you perfect? All of us sin. It's just another example of God's grace. But the danger of that is it can overlook genuine repentance. There have been well-known pastors who have had public sins and returned to ministry and never publicly repented or even apologized for their sins. That should not be so. As a church, as Christians, we can make the mistake of conflating being restored to ministry as if that is the gospel. A person can be justified and forgiven in Christ, but still be unfit to be a leader in the church. No one has to be a pastor. Secondly, there are some unique facets of the modern American church that they were not dealing with in the first century, such as money. When megachurch pastors have their scandals and are so eager to get back into the pulpit, I don't want to sound cynical, but some of these people get rich off of preaching and teaching, and so they have a financial reason of why they want to get back up. That wasn't the case at all in the first century. The disciples were looked down upon, were scorned, were beaten, arrested, and even killed for their faith and ministry. I'm not saying that everyone who's been disqualified and who has the desire to get back into a formal ministry setting has bad intentions. But there is the risk for that. And as I keep saying, churches need to take seriously the biblical requirements for leading in the church. Jesus told us to be aware of wolves. But some of the hardiest wolves can be those in the pulpit. Jesus restores Peter. He entrusts Peter with tending to his sheep. This language is reminiscent of the Good Shepherd passage in John 10, where Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. John 10, 3 and 4. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Peter has been called to take pastoral care for those who are part of the flock of Jesus. That call was given to the rest of the apostles, and there's been a calling on the shepherds and churches throughout the ages. All is well. We come to our second section. First part of verse 18. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. I'll stop right there. I was struck by the commentary of Grant Osborne, who was a New Testament professor at Trinity, where I went to seminary. I never actually had him as a professor. Um, he was teaching when I was a student there, but it just it never worked out in our schedules. I shouldn't say our. It never worked out in my schedule to have him. I don't know if he cared about it. But, but in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he writes, This is a difficult verse for me to explain, because at my current stage of life, I'm living out this story. I am 75 years old and have to walk with a cane, sometimes a walker. When I go down in any incline, I have to hold on to someone's arm to balance myself. Unfortunately, this is my verse. Dr. Osborne passed away about a year after he wrote this commentary on John. The key is what comes next, though, in the second half of verse 18. Jesus says, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands... And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus is making a prophetic statement about Peter. 
The stretching out of Peter's hands refers to Peter himself facing death by crucifixion. He will be led to where he does not want to go and suffer the same death that his Lord and Savior endured. The traditional historic view within church history is that Peter was later crucified. Verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I'll refer back to what we've talked about a few moments ago. That celebrity pastors get restored to ministry so they can go back to being rich and famous. How many would sign up for what Jesus just restored Peter to? Yes, he is restored to his apostolic office. But he's also given a glimpse of how he will meet his end. And so Jesus is talking to Peter, verse 20. They see John. Now, it's the same John who wrote this gospel. As always, he never mentions himself by name in this gospel. But he gives firsthand accounts of Jesus' life, death, and ministry as an insider who was uniquely positioned to witness these things. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? John is reminding us of events where he, Peter, and Jesus had interacted, such as at the table during the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. John was there. John saw Jesus arrested. He was at the cross. And now he's with Peter and Jesus. Jesus has been told that he's going to be crucified. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? It's almost common. You're going to die. He sees John and says, what about him? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus scolds Peter. He tells Peter to mind his own business. For the second time in this passage, we see the command given, follow me. That is what Jesus is calling Peter to. Discipleship. Follow me. It's the call that Jesus gives to Peter at the beginning of his ministry. And he's saying it to Peter again at the end of his earthly ministry. And he's also telling Peter not to concern himself with John and his ministry. You only have your own life to live. You can only serve your own ministry. We aren't called to primarily concern ourselves with extraneous worries and questions that have ultimately nothing to do with us. Because above all, we are to follow Jesus. We don't always need to know everything. We don't always need to have the full picture as much as we might want to. What we need to do is to follow Jesus, be faithful to that, and trust in him. Verse 23. So the saying spread among the, disciples, among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Apparently there was some sort of misunderstanding among the disciples about what exactly Jesus had said to John. Really, it's another one of those historical details that makes no sense for a later writer to invent. Why take the last recorded words from Jesus in this book 
and introduced that there was confusion about a teaching from the risen Jesus among his own followers who were getting ready to go out and start the church. It wasn't made up because it was a conversation that really happened. Peter hears he's going to die on the cross. The rest of the disciples misconstrue what he said to John and apparently think he's Mr. Millennium, he's just going to be around. John would not remain until Jesus returned. However, it's likely that the Apostle John was the longest lived of all the apostles. Unlike the rest of the disciples, there's no strong church tradition that John was ever martyred for his faith. And that brings us to our third scene, third section, and the last two verses of this book. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I love how John ends his gospel. Bearing witness to Jesus is another significant theme throughout this book. Throughout this gospel, we've seen that God the Father bears witness to Jesus. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus. John the Baptist, the works of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and now the Apostle John ends by saying that he, too, bears witness to what he has seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Sometimes skeptics will ask why something is mentioned in one gospel or not another, or why one gospel doesn't talk about something that we find in another gospel. Why don't Mark and John talk about the birth of Christ? Why doesn't John have parables? Jesus did more than what could be covered in one volume. And they didn't have infinite supplies of writing materials in the first century, a time where everything that was written had to be copied by hand. Jesus did so much more than what anyone could ever record that he did. To give some perspective, modern American presidents have their papers and documents preserved in presidential libraries at the end of their terms. And the most recent presidential library to have opened is that of George W. Bush in Dallas. It has over 40 million pages worth of documents. In addition to the documents, the George W. Bush Library has almost 4 million photographs and over 30,000 audiovisual recordings. You can read biographies of presidents. You can watch documentaries of presidents. But you're scratching the surface. Unimaginable volumes of work get accomplished. And so as John concludes his gospel, he points to the countless stories of the life of Jesus, the things that he did, the lives that he touched, the things that he taught. John, nor any of the other gospel writers, ever sought out to record everything Jesus said or did exhaustively. And it's a lovely thought that Jesus did so much more that the world itself would not contain those volumes. I like to think that part of our time in heaven it's been getting to hear the rest of those stories. And that's the Gospel of John. We've covered every verse in this Gospel, all 879 of them. In a moment, we're going to do baptisms. Even though this passage is not specifically about baptism, I think that it fits the occasion very well. In the beginning, we see the grace and forgiveness of Jesus to Peter. Baptism is a picture of that. It's a declaration to the world that... You know Jesus and that he is your Lord and Savior. 
In this passage, we see repentance. Baptism is symbolic of the renewal that we have in Christ. It's symbolic of cleansing and of our sin being washed away. God's mercies are new every morning, and we are invited to live for him every day. In this passage, we see Jesus pointing forward to Peter and John. Those men and the rest of the disciples helped to start the church by the power of Christ. They had their ministries. They had their ministries to fulfill in their day. Not just for these kids who are getting ready to get baptized, but for all of us that we too have our ways to serve. We too have our role. We have our place in building up the kingdom of God. In this passage, Jesus twice tells Peter, follow me. Baptism is saying to the church and to the world that you intend to live your life following Jesus. But again, for all of us, it should be a reminder that Jesus is the Lord and that he gives our lives meaning and purpose and that our lives are an opportunity to serve him. The Apostle John wrote his gospel to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. And we are called to live our lives to bear witness to the truth of Jesus and what he has done for us in saving us from our sins and inviting us to know life in him. Now, if the kids who are getting baptized would like to come forward at this time, and if their parents I invite to, the, to join them. Our Lord instituted baptism for his church prior to his ascension when he commanded the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. It symbolizes our union with Christ. As Jesus died and rose in baptism, we are immersed in the water and brought back up as a symbol of death and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6 verses 3 through 5, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. At this church, we practice believer's baptism, meaning that in order to be baptized, one must be able to give a profession to their own personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I've heard it said that baptism is the most important thing a Christian will ever do. You guys might get married someday. This is more important. Jesus didn't give a command that you have to get married, but he did give a command that you must be baptized. Baptism is what has been given to us by Christ himself. It is something that he desires for all of his followers. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and after that we'll have a song. And after I pray, if you guys want to uh, get ready to whatever you need to do to get changed, to get baptized, but I'll pray right now. Our Heavenly Father... What a joyous occasion it is to see people baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for each of these kids being baptized today, for Toby, Olivia, and Annalise Hall, and for Will Faber. For all of them, Lord, we pray that this moment would be a memory that they will cherish for the rest of their lives. We pray that today would be one of many important moments in their walk of faith. Lord, as a church, may we rejoice in the baptisms of these young believers 
May we pray for them, encourage them in their faith, and exhort them in their walk with you. For all of us who have been baptized, may we joyfully witness these baptisms and remember that our own baptisms were an outward symbol of the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bruce, if you want to come forward.